Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. have you been up to already this morning on this fine Wednesday? Last Wednesday of October, last week of October. If you haven't already done some really thoughtful, kind note or act of appreciation for your pastor, I mean, not that, you, not that, not that every month can't be Pastor Appreciation Month, but this is actually officially Pastor Appreciation Month, so uh, do something thoughtful Send your pastor a note this week, uh, maybe include a gift card to somewhere that you know uh, that they like to dine with their spouse. Like, right, do do something, do something above and beyond this week for your pastor, Pastor Appreciation Week. A little shout out to my pastor, Scott Patty, this morning. Um, okay, what else have you done this morning? I have um, already, in addition to spending time in the Word of God and preparing to talk with you today, I have made one of my family favorites, which is Redemption Muffins. There you go, right? I know it does not surprise you that we have a family recipe for something crazy like that, redemption muffins. Here's how it works. So after you, now I know you may not be growing your own apples, and so you may not be um, pressing your own apples into your own apple cider, but in the years when we have a really abundant apple crop, which we did not this year, but a couple of years ago we did, we pressed lots of our apples into apple cider, and then we froze it so that we could enjoy it throughout the year. Well, if you've ever pressed apples, then you know you end up with a lot of leftovers. All of the meat uh, and the skin of the apple is is lying there in a in a bucket at the end of the process. And I didn't have the heart to just throw it away. Now, certainly you can spread it in the woods and feed the deer, and that's a really nice thing to do. But we chose to put it into some freezer bags, press it down into some freezer bags, and then develop a recipe. This was my challenge. Uh, Develop a recipe for something we now call redemption muffins. And so we are redeeming these leftover pieces and parts of the apple. So this morning, my house smells so great because this morning I made some redemption muffins. I was, I kind of had a hankering for them. It's a little bit like a spice cake slash walnut raisin, apple, pineapple goodness. There you go. That pretty much gives you all the ingredients right there. That's pretty much all you need to know. You got to put enough binding in there to hold it together, but mostly it is apple sludge and uh, raisins and walnuts. So I'm uh, I'm in a good humor already because I've already made some redemption muffins. The L.A. Dodgers won the World Series last night over the Tampa Bay Rays. That seems significant and important to at least some portion of the population. Not as important in this pandemic year as it has been in other years. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett was sworn in as a justice of the U.S. Supreme Court and actually started her job. She is on the job as a justice on the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court is in session. So for those of you living in Wisconsin, you probably already know this, but the Supreme Court denied the Democrats' appeal that Wisconsin extend the deadline for receipt of mail-in ballots. And so the only uh, mail-in ballots that will be 
uh, that will be counted in Wisconsin are those that arrive on or before Election Day. So let's see. I'm going to read the leadoff paragraph. The Supreme Court on Monday refused to extend the election deadline for mail-in ballots in Wisconsin, rejecting appeals from Democrats who said the Postal Service may not be able to handle the flood of election mail by November 3rd. The justices, by a 5-3 vote, in place, uh, left in place a ruling by the Seventh Circuit Court in Chicago that blocked uh, relaxing the deadline in response to the pandemic. So this begins to get us into a conversation about how um, courts decide things in the midst of pandemic. And there's actually a whole category of law called pandemic law, which if you're not familiar with, um, may be why cases are being decided um, as they are in these days. Just something to think about. There are all kinds of rules that apply when we are in something that is officially a pandemic or a national emergency. Um, And the rules are different than they are in sort of regular time. All right. First up this morning, I've got George Barna. We're going to talk about some more findings um, from the American Worldview Values Inventory 2020. Are Americans redefining and customizing Christianity? Well, yes, indeed we are. So how so? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. There's always a reason to always choose joy. There's something deeper that the world can't destroy. Smile. Well, welcome back. Thrilled to be joined again today by George Barna. We are talking about the American Worldview Inventory 2020. Uh, you can find it at ArizonaChristian.edu in the Cultural Research Center. George, welcome back. Good to be with you, Carmen. All right. So um, today we're going to specifically talk about the findings of the American Worldview Inventory 2020 in terms of how Christians sort of perceive and understand themselves. So you have identified some pretty significant shifts in the way Christians define themselves or see themselves. So talk about what you've discovered. Well, in this particular report, what we were looking at was what difference does it make what type of church somebody goes to? And so we broke up the people who consider themselves to be Christian into basically four categories. Those who attend an evangelical church, those who attend a Pentecostal church, those who attend a mainline Protestant church, and those who go to a Catholic church. And while there were significant differences among all of them, I think the thing that's most startling of all is that each of these groups has radically different perspectives than you would find if you simply sat down and read the Bible. Even though all of these churches say that the Bible matters, the Bible is our guidebook, essentially what I would say is happening is that people who want the identity of being Christian, they think of themselves as Christian, they call themselves Christian, they're essentially out to redefine the Christian faith according to their own liking. Uh, and that is definitely um, the takeaway from my reading of what you have posted. This this sentence really struck me. Uh, American Christianity is undergoing a post-Christian reformation. When I think about the Reformation, George, you know, I think about um, that call to be reformed and always being reformed according to the Word of God. When we talk about a post-Christian reformation, we are talking about an intentional or maybe unintentional first, you know, some people's participation. Um, But it's a reformation of the church that is expressly not according to the Word of God. 
Yeah, what's going on here in this Reformation is that we've said, you know what, we've got a better idea. And instead Hmm. of putting God on the throne, why don't we sit on the throne? Why don't we make everything work for us? Because according to our point of view, the real purpose of life is just to enjoy ourselves. It's to make sure that everything fits our needs and it propels us forward and it puts us where we want to be, regardless of what any old time books or old time theology might say. We know what's best and nobody can tell us that we're wrong because in this new way of thinking, there are no absolute moral truths, whether they're from the Bible or anywhere else. The only truth that exists is what's in my mind and my heart, and that gets played out in my life and you can't tell me it's wrong. So the whole concept there, though, that we know what's best suggests that there are something, that there's a scale, that there's a way to judge things, that there is a good, better, and best, that there is a uh, that there is right and wrong. If you can't tell me that, that I'm not wrong, then you're at least acknowledging that there is a right and a wrong. So how do these so-called Christians arrive at these ideas, if not by, at some level, using the Bible? Well, it, it's kind of a postmodern approach to life, which says that because there are no absolute moral truths, there is no objective standard of right and wrong Essentially, you're going to have to figure it out for yourself. And the way that that people do it is through experiences and feelings. Ultimately, Mm. it's really feelings. You know, you have experiences and if it feels right, great, you keep doing it. If it doesn't feel right, doesn't seem right, then, then you chuck it and you do something else. But really what we've come down to is a nation that is no longer driven by truth. It's no longer driven by a relationship with God. It's driven by feelings of happiness, fulfillment, and satisfaction. All right. So when we start breaking down these groups, I want to look at the evangelicals first. Um, evangelicals are embracing secularism. Talk with us about um, about this, uh, the findings in relationship to this particular group of people. Well, let's, let's think of, of the idea of what an evangelical church is. By definition, these are churches that teach that God exists, God's the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe, rules it today, and he gave us his word, which we know is the Bible, as a guide for our lives. And it contains absolute moral truths, and therefore it's to be the standard for how we live. That's that's evangelical churches in a nutshell. And, and that, by the way, salvation is only by the grace of God through the death and resurrection uh, atonement of Christ for us. But when we look at the people who are attending evangelical churches today, what we're finding is that a majority of them would say, nah, that's not right, because there is no absolute moral truth. 52% would say that. Most of them would say that the Bible is not inerrant or without errors. It's not trustworthy. It's not relevant to life today. Uh, We see that being played out in terms of less and less people attending evangelical churches, reading the Bible on a daily basis. We find that most of them say, we're not sinners. People are basically good. We just need to do better. 75% believe that people are basically good. These are people who attend evangelical churches. And they've refashioned what we've commonly known as the Trinity, 
now believing that Jesus Christ himself is a sinner. Almost half of them believe that. Six out of ten believe there's no such thing as the Holy Spirit. It's just kind of a literary symbol. And almost two-thirds of them saying, in fact, it doesn't really matter what faith you buy into. What's important is that you buy into some faith. And we've seen this get played out in kind of a new moral code where virtually anything is okay as long as it feels good. So, George, I guarantee you there's some people listening right now who are saying to themselves, well, I kind of wonder, what do the, you know, what do the people in my church think about this? Is there a way for a church to access um, the questions in the uh, American Worldview Inventory and kind of do it for themselves, for their own constituency? Yeah, we're actually working on that process now. We've got a couple of software glitches, but once we get those worked out, churches will have access to this, and, and we hope they do this. Because, you know, to me, what we face in America is not a political crisis. It's a worldview crisis. Yeah. So we're going to send you to the culturalresearchcenter.com. Great resources there um, for what George Barna and I are talking about today. We're going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to look at um, the other sort of groupings of Christians uh, based on where people go to church and the findings related uh, to their actual expression of faith. That's the American Worldview Inventory 2020 from Arizona Christian University. You can find it at arizonachristian.edu. We'll be right back. Picking up now on my conversation with Dr. George Barna, we are talking about some findings of the American Worldview Inventory 2020, the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. Um, George, let's talk about those three other constituencies. Uh, We've talked about evangelicals or people who at least attend evangelical churches. Let's now talk about Pentecostals and Charismatics. What did you find distinctive about people who attend those kinds of churches? Well, those who go to Pentecostal churches look very similar in most ways to those who attend evangelical churches. But there are a few key differences, one of which, for instance, is there's a much higher rejection rate of absolute moral truth. Uh, They're more likely than evangelicals to believe that human life is not sacred and also to believe that the Bible's ambiguous in its teachings about abortion, believing you can make a strong argument either way. So really, it's ultimately up to you. And these, this is where we find uh, two out of three Pentecostals saying that they would prefer socialism to capitalism. So we've got all those issues, and also twice as many Pentecostals are not born-again Christians as you would find in evangelical churches. So some very serious uh, issues at, at play in Pentecostal churches. You know, maybe what I find really particularly troubling, people are not reading the Bible. People do not regard um, life as sacred nor given expressly by God, and therefore, you know, only his to do with what he wills. You know, and this conversation about forms of government, like socialism and capitalism, just in terms of the way we work together and understand one another as parts of a culture or society, um, it's just, it's profoundly connected. And I think that it helps people actually understand what's going on in the world when we're able to look at it from this perspective. This is really helpful. Let's talk about mainline Protestants. That's my heritage. Uh, mainline Protestants are the most secular of the four faith families. Tell us about that. Well, I mean, we looked at, at 
31 different variables here that mainline Protestants are substantially uh, different from everybody else, and particularly at odds with biblical teaching. And, and uh, without going through all 31 variables, we don't have the time for that, but it kind of goes into three different categories. One is that in the mainline community, those who attend these mainline churches, truth and morality are thought to be determined by the with evangelicals and Pentecostals, but it's much more pronounced here among those at mainline churches. We found that people attending mainline churches would say that life has no inherent value or purpose. You determine what that is for yourself. You embed that in the conversation. But really, because of that, uh, you have to make the most of life. Life is what you make it. It's all about producing personal happiness and satisfaction. There's no universal God-given purpose for people. And your moral choices really depend on, quote-unquote, your heart, your emotions, how you feel about these things. And then the third major area is that we also see, not surprisingly, given all of that, that traditional religious practices are neither central nor uh, essential to the Christian faith of mainline Protestants. And so things like reading the Bible, praying to God, seeking God's will, confessing your sins, thanking, praising, worshiping God, all of those things much, much less likely among mainline Protestants than you would find among other people in the Protestant uh, world. Also, they have the lowest proportion of individuals who could be considered to be born-again Christians. It's the problem of an unconverted church. I mean, it's just, it's so heartbreaking. I mean, I think about mainline Protestantism, you know, in there, you've certainly got those who gave us the Westminster Confession of Faith, where there was no question that uh, life not only has a purpose, it's a God-ordained purpose, and it's a God-directed purpose. I mean, the number one question, or the first question in the Westminster Catechism, you know, what is the chief end of man? And there was an entire generation of Americans who, when you asked that question, would have absolutely been ready with an answer. They would have been able to say, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Um, we're not only, you know, at least a generation away from people being able to answer a catechetical question. We we are now in the throes of people not regarding that there is a God, that he's worthy of glorifying, nor that my life should be uh, pressed in a direction of uh, of him and, and what he wants. It's just it's um it's it's genuinely heartbreaking. All right. So let's deal with this last uh, this final or fourth category. And those are people who attend Catholic churches. Talk with us, because when I think about Catholics, I tend to think about those with whom I am at least morally aligned. But that is uh, increasingly not the case. That's accurate. I mean, and, and keep in mind, the Catholics represent the largest denomination in America today. They have for a long time. And so they have tremendous influence. But when you look at, at what they believe, not only do they pretty much fall in line with the mainline Protestants, but they have the most diverse set of beliefs about salvation of any of the Christian denominational families here is what I'm calling these four groups. Uh, you know, they, they, they're all over the map in terms of what happens after you die. They're the group that's least likely to believe that it's important to share faith in Christ with other people. Uh, they are the people who are most likely to define success in terms of personal achievement or emotional fulfillment. And then when we look at their behavior, we find that they have the most permissive worldview. They embrace trying anything once. Uh, they're most likely to accept things like sexual relations outside of marriage, lying, refusing to repay loans, 
Uh, and they're also the most, most likely to believe that just have some faith. It doesn't matter which one, but just have some faith. And once again, it, it's hard to reconcile that with biblical teaching. But it, yeah, it's impossible. I mean, you can't. Those two cannot be reconciled. <laughs> better, better way of saying it, yeah. <laughs> oh, George, um, I never like to you know leave a conversation on this kind of note. So I'm going to uh, step away from the American Worldview Inventory 2020. Um, because this is just frankly a little bit sad. We need to return. We need to return to the Word of God. The Word of God needs to re- be restored to its rightful place in the life of the individual Christian, the life of every congregation, the life of the church, in order that the church could be restored to her rightful place in the life of the culture, in order that the culture could be reformed in a in a in a God honoring direction. That would be the 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 edge of call here. But I got to ask a dog question before we go. How's your dog? <laughs> uh you know I, I we have a blind dog he's been blind since birth ray charles and uh he's tremendous he's great i love to watch him because this is a guy that i learn from he inspires me by looking at the tough things in life and not changing the essence of who he is and i think for christians that's what we've got to remember our essence is that we are made in the image of god to know love and serve him and that's what we have to stay true to I love it. Hey, George, thank you, as always, for joining us. Such a pleasure. We look forward to the next installment of this conversation. You guys can find what we're talking about today at the American Worldview Inventory 2020, the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, arizonachristian.edu. George, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Carmen. We'll be right back. All right. Somebody is going to win the U.S. presidential election. I can't tell you exactly when that's going to happen. I can tell you that voting is already taking place. I mean, in Minnesota, I feel like voting's been going on for two months. I know that it's been going on a long time where I live as well. Uh, There's a voting season now. Tens of millions of Americans have already voted. Tens of millions more um, are yet to vote. Someone is going to be elected. How are we going to respond no matter who wins? So in much the same way that um, my dad would say, uh, in the heat of the moment in the backseat of a car is not the time to decide how you are going to respond in a particular situation, uh, particularly in a pressure-filled situation. And so let's make a decision today about who we're going to be and how we're going to respond no matter who wins the U.S. presidential election. So I'm going to have that conversation with Hunter Baker from Union University. We're actually going to um, do a little exercise of no matter who you are voting for. So let's say you are voting for Trump. Well, if Trump wins, we're going to get you thinking about the concerns that Christians who vote for Biden have and why those need to be your concerns. And then if you're voting for Biden and you're a Christian, we want to have a conversation with you about the concerns that Christians who vote for Trump have in order that those can be your concerns on the other side of the election. All of that up next on Mornings with Carmen. Explosive anger between family members isn't new. Neither is the antidote. 3,000 years ago, a man wrote this. A gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. 
That advice is from the book of Proverbs, chapter 15, is just as relevant today as it was the day it was written. When arguments and anger reign in the house, one way to fan the flames is with harsh language. What do your responses sound like? Are they quick and cutting or slow and gentle? We all mess up at times, but I'd encourage you to aim for consistent responses when things get heated. As Proverbs 15 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Find more parenting help from Mark Gregston at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Hunter Baker from Union University. Um, all kinds of places and spaces where you can find Hunter. Um, he actually on social media is at Hunter Baker, which is pretty cool that you got there first. Hunter, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I'm the, I'm the oldest Hunter Baker. That's <laughs> that's why it works that way. I was first. You're the original. You're exactly. the original. Um. So I definitely, definitely want to get to this Braver Angels. Um with malice toward none peace. And so let me just tee that up for everybody. I want you guys to check out what's happening at braverangels.org. I promise you, Hunter and I will get there. Um, But let's start, Hunter, by doing a little bit of, I don't know, I don't know if it's role-playing or projection or what, but let's talk to Christians on both sides of the aisle um, about how we're going to behave after the election. And so right now, let's talk to Christians who vote for Trump if Trump wins about the concerns that Christians who vote for Biden have. Absolutely. Well, the pe- people on both sides and this is this is not unusual. I mean, we are when we're having an election, it's not like it's Superman versus Lex Luthor or Batman versus the Joker. Uh you have two people presenting a vision for America uh, and emphasizing different things. So what we have from Donald Trump is an emphasis on on some things that really concern Christians, uh, such as abortion and religious liberty. And he has uh, he has followed up on that with his judicial appointments, uh, as we've seen with with uh, Amy Coney Barrett here in the in the last couple of days. Uh, And but those Christians who are satisfied with what's been done so far need to understand the concerns that other Christians have, uh, not only with Donald Trump's character, but they they may have different ideas uh, about how immigration should work, uh, about how the economy should be run, uh, about what we should be doing for poor people. Uh, one of the things that comes up to me a lot is that People uh, are worried about his approach to COVID. They think he's a loose cannon on COVID. Uh, and we just have to understand that that whether we agree with people politically or not, very often there is at least some validity to the way they're thinking, that you know there, there can be a rational case made, and that we need to have respect for the fact that to them – they feel that uh, that the wrong thing has happened, that the United States will not have the right leadership, that we won't do the right things, and that they will be grieving over that. Uh, and the, so the absolute wrong thing is to want to 
you know, uh, drink the tears of liberals or uh, pounce on the snowflakes or, or whatever, right? The, the right thing to do would be to, to have compassion, to realize that, uh, that you could be on the losing side, which, is, which as we know from the polling is entirely possible for Trump, um, and just be diplomatic and try to come back together over the first things of faith again. Uh, I was interviewed by uh, a group of theologically liberal Christians last week, and they asked me, you know, so how can we re- reconnect with more conservative Christians? And I said, well, you, you need to start talking about the first things of faith. You need to start talking about uh, the validity of Scripture. You need to start talking about the virgin birth, about the resurrection of Christ, the physical resurrection of Christ, you know, the, his ability to forgive our sins, these sorts of things. These are the kind of things that Christians can bond over, and uh, we need to return to thinking about those things. You know, that come, that brings to mind, you know, so we've recently had this conversation uh, with Brett McCracken um, about our neighbor's new creed. Like, so using these signs that people put in their yard about, you know, in this house, we believe. And I don't think Christians have been very good about articulating, hey, in this house, we believe. Um, and then walking that out in a way that doesn't just seem like smacking people around. Like, great. So, you know, in this house, we do believe that there is one God and father of us all. We do believe in this house, you know, that there there is a Savior and his name is Jesus. We do believe in this house that um, that God is actually really concerned about your welfare. Like, you know, and, and I want to be your neighbor in the midst of that. Like, we have not been articulating and presenting the faith in a way that is um, attractive and attractional to our neighbors that would make them want to walk on our yard and have a conversation with us. We have been sort of the get-off-my-yard kind of people. So I think that— um, yeah, so I mean, I just think that on both sides of the aisle, the Christian needs to be a Christian. Oh, I mean, absolutely. It's so funny, Carmen. You just highlighted to me one of the ways I fall short. I have a neighbor. Do you who actually tell people one... to get off your yard? <laughs> no, I'm just but curious. I have, I, there's a neighbor. There's a person <laughs> in the neighborhood who has one of these. You know, in this house, we believe that we believe in science and we believe that yeah, love is love. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, and every time I walk by, I think to myself, you know, well, in my house, we believe you should use a lawnmower, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now the neighborly uh, thing to do might be to just go mow their yard. <laughs> so that no, their sign yeah, is, so it's, you know, it's terrible. Is like, you know, be neighbor, man. I know, I know. I'm, I'm not going to continue. passive aggressive. Right. Yeah, a little bit. Yes. Okay, so let's, um, let's pivot. Let's talk, um, let's talk to Christians who are voting for Biden um, if Biden wins. What I'm trying to get people to not do is just gloat. If your person wins, my concern is that Christians will be a part of the crazy gloating. And instead, oh, yeah. I want us to be mindful that we have Christian brothers and sisters on the other side of the aisle who will not be feeling the same euphoria that we are feeling if our guy wins. So what? that's my attempt this morning. So if you are voting for Biden and Biden wins, here are the concerns yeah. of your Christian Abs- brothers and sisters who are voting for Trump. Yeah, absolutely. Well, those of us who are voting for Trump, uh, I think that by far and away, and I get this from people all the time, the number one concern is the life of the unborn child. Uh, we saw a right to abortion um, at almost any stage of the pregnancy, whatever anybody else tells you, um, not only permitted 
in the states, but uh, but made a positive constitutional right in 1973. And there are a lot of people who feel so strongly uh, about addressing that bad court decision that they they feel it in the same way that marchers in the 1960s felt about segregation. It is in their bones. They feel like it is the greatest injustice and the greatest wrong in American society. And they desperately want to see that repealed. They desperately want to see that change. And so for them, they are fighting uh, literally a life and death struggle. And so from their perspective, any setback uh, or anyone who is against that, perhaps even threatening the court, threatening to pack the court to prevent that outcome, uh, this is a terrible thing. It's a tragedy. you certainly would not want to gloat, I hope, over a defeat of a person who feels that way. Uh, and, and of course, it would be it would be cruel uh, and it would be in, inappropriate given the nature of the issue. Uh, but the other thing is, is that I'll be straight with you. I am worried. Uh, I am worried about what will happen after this election. Uh, Donald Trump was running way, way behind last time and, of course, still still won. With all of these absentee ballots and, and mail-ins and uh, long lines that there are going to be, I'm worried that we will have some post-election chaos. And and I'll tell you what, if people are not virtuous in, in, in the way they deal with each other, if people are not charitable, you'll simply just be pouring gas on the fire. And I and I don't mean in the in the biblical uh, heaping hot coals on somebody's headway, right? Uh, I mean, in the way of actively encouraging anarchy and chaos and hatred. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we really have to avoid that. All right. Um, Hunter and I have to take a very brief break. Um, as you're listening right now, I want you to be praying for a listener. He he or she is 86 years old. Um, and the conversation that we just had a minute ago with George Barna has just utterly shattered this person's heart. Um, they say I'm a Pentecostal. I'm just devastated by the findings in the American Worldview Values um, survey. I'm 86 years old. It's just so hard for me to believe. Um, let's just be praying for one another in the midst of all of this. Let's be, um, let's be gracious. Let's be humble. And let's acknowledge that just a lot of our friends and neighbors um, and those who are in generations ahead of us um, who, who are having a really hard time right now. And we need to be... Um, members of the body of Christ and the family of faith in really significant ways to one another in these days. Hunter Baker and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation. I'm going to pivot to uh, to this really pretty, uh, I think, incredible um, uh, resource that Braver Angels has produced. It's called With Malice Toward None. You can find it at braverangels.org. We're talking about that up next. If I- Continuing my conversation with Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University. Um, Hunter, I saw that you tweeted out the Braver Angels with Malice Toward None um, resource. Uh, and so I'm hoping that you can brief us in on this. I, I got to tell you, I, I am encouraged to read it, and I am hopeful that people will make use of it. Yeah, we have uh, – so we have a couple of things. We have the With Malice Toward None pledge. 
basically basically a pledge regarding how we will uh, deal with each other with civility and kindness and uh, and a constructive attitude after the election, cueing off of those uh, words from Lincoln, uh, referring to how we're going to uh, live together after the Civil War. Of course, he's tragically assassinated, uh, and a lot of bad comes from that. But so the with malice toward none pledge, uh, and also the uh, the to hold America together statement uh, that you can sign that is at the website, um, and I think that we may even have a yard sign related to uh, some of this stuff as well. Uh, and I am really encouraged because uh, Braver Angels uh, is really one of the few groups in American society that is not that is not pushing polarization. Uh, they are trying to get us to, to uh, love and appreciate each other, to stop seeing each other only as a political category. Uh, we tend to refer to each other as liberals and conservatives, uh, but rather to see ourselves as the American people. And, uh, and I am so encouraged by the reaction that a lot of people have had to things like the With Malice Toward None Pledge. One of my colleagues uh, at Faulkner University in Montgomery, Alabama, which is a conservative uh, Church of Christ college, uh, told me that he had shared the With Malice Toward None pledge in chapel, uh, I think, Monday this week. And, uh, and I've heard that a lot of colleges and universities have been doing that. And so, you know, we have to start focusing on this. We have to, we have to start learning that politics is not war. Politics is a substitute for war. Politics is a way not to go to war, right? Uh, and so, <laughs> so we need to, uh, to learn to see the dignity uh, in each other and in, in our opponents uh, and to have a real prize and, and priority for living together peacefully. And that's what With Malice Toward None is all about. Yeah. And so I just want to encourage people to check it out. Um, it is at braverangels.org. We have uh, platformed. Um, folks from Braver Angels here on the program before. Hunter Baker is um, personally involved as well. Here's the Malice Toward None pledge. Regardless of how the election turns out, I will not hold hate, disdain, or ridicule for those who voted differently from me. Whether I am pleased or upset about the outcome, I will seek to understand the concerns and aspirations of those who voted differently and look for opportunities to work with people with whom I disagree. Hunter, none of us are just going to sort of accidentally fall into relationships um, with people who are different from us ideologically, politically, economically, socially, geographically, demographically. Like we have to be intentional. And that's um, that, that feels like uh, the way the Christian should want to be. I mean, it's missional. It's missional living at the most personal level. There's there's no question about that. I mean, that's that's part of why uh, I am committed to trying to be in conversation with people with whom I disagree. Uh, I spent an hour and a half uh, being interviewed by, by theologically liberal people last week, politically liberal people. And let me tell you something, that's a lot harder than talking to you, Carmen, uh, because yeah. <laughs> you and I agree about a lot of stuff. Uh, and, you know, so you, so you can feel the, the strain of uh, people who disagree with you, uh, but it is, it is very rewarding to do it, uh, as long as you kind of can keep your wits about you, not get mad, 
you see a lot of fruit out of those kind of discussions. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, missions do not only occur, uh, you know, on the other side of an ocean somewhere. Uh, missions occur in your everyday life uh, as, you, as you share with others uh, the reason for the hope that is within you. And sometimes those people, uh, sometimes those people are the people who disagree with you about a lot of stuff. But that's okay. That's what we're called to do. Dr. Hunter Baker, as always, thank you um, so, so very much. We appreciate your contribution to the conversation. Um, We will hold no malice toward one another on the other side of the election. Boy, I hope not. (laughs) Absolutely. All right, man, I'm praying for you. You be praying for me. Uh, Let's both be praying for our listeners. These These are challenging times. We appreciate the conversation. Sure thing. Thank you. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right, a couple of quick contributions here from those of you who are writing to me uh, via our text line, which you can always do during the show, 877-933-2484. One listener says, um, I say to myself and to others in these days, Psalm 37, 8, refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. Um, Amen and amen to that. Um, And then uh, to a listener um, who said this about my initial conversation with George Barna. Barna's comments are both amazing and amazingly sad. What's happening to the faith in this country? How do we reignite a passion for the truth, big caps, over my truth, um, in quotes? Um, Here's my response. And literally, this is just off the top of my head. Number one, pray for revival. Number two, return to the word of God. Number three, be a living demonstration of the gospel in the world. Uh, Four, reframe your conversations. Every conversation you're engaged in is an opportunity for you to bring God and the gospel worldview to the fore. Five, connect, collaborate with others who are doing the same. Um, Life together in genuine Christian fellowship, genuine Christian accountability. The people we do life with um, are going to influence not only how we live, but how we demonstrate the gospel to others. Number six, invest strategically in ministries that are aligned with the revival or gospel advancing effort. Uh, Number seven, influence the culture where you are. Like be a, you don't like, you don't change the culture where you are. You can influence the culture where you live, work, eat, play, vacation, study, teach, shop, on and on and on. Hey, you influence the culture by playing Christian radio um, wherever you are all the time. So other people can at least overhear it if they're not intentionally listening to it. There you go. Number eight, equip yourself and start talking about the first things of the faith. Um, Revisit the Apostles' Creed. Revisit the Lord's Prayer. Think on these things. Equip yourself to start talking about these things, the first things of the faith. Um, Number nine, do your part to see the Word of God restored to its rightful place in the life of the church. That means calling the church leaders in your own Christian community to account. If the Word of God's being perverted where you worship, it's your job as a Christian to stand up and say so. Like, you need to say, um, that's actually not what the Bible says. Whew, I know it's hard. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.